I always wear my mask and wash my hands after going home. It's a good tuna, but I think I pay too much. I am the king of the ring. Welcome to the Japan What Podcast, episode 132. Coming at you from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. The armpit of Asia. I am your host, Matthew PMBigelow.com, covering AI trends from Japan, rising conflict in the Indo Pacific, odd items, de dollarization, depopulation, migration, and more. At MatthewPMBigelow.com. Thank you for joining us today. We are busy, busy bees in the studio, so we're going to jump right into it right now. Uh, we're going to begin with, uh, it's Oh My God WTF. I used to begin with new products, then new services, and then just, I was like, okay, it's something crazy, something weird. Uh, Japan's a very insular society, as most people know. And that's why we have half naked men doused with cold water on Mad Dash through Japan City in Unique Festival. I'll be posting pictures onto MatthewPMBigelow.com archiving these important cultural events. Uh, this comes to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. Uh, like I said, half naked men doused with cold water on Mad Dash through Japan City in Unique Festival. Festival. This is published on February 12th, 2024. And this is being released a couple of days after that. So it's new enough. Again, the Japan What Podcast is not a breaking news podcast. We compile events, compile trends, and look at things on a broader,、uh, deeper perspective than just hopping from reaction news to reaction news, going react, react, react. We don't do that here. I really don't think it's beneficial to the To the human mind.、Uh, Ichinoseki, Iwate Prefecture. Half naked men. Okay, this is the third time I'm saying half naked men, and it's not enough. It's not enough. Half naked men sped through the main streets of the south, northeastern Japan city while being doused with cold water as part of a traditional festival. On February 11th, the city was filled with energy as the Daito Ohara Mizukake Festival kicked off in its full form for the first time in four years due to the pandemic. The festival originated as a prayer for fire prevention based on lessons learned from the Great Fire in Edo, present day Tokyo, in 1657. Recently, prayers for good health and banishing bad luck have also become festival mainstays. This year, 208 people, including locals and out of prefecture visitors, wrapped cotton clothes around their waist for the chilly sprint. In the cold wind, they were splashed with buckets of purifying water from the roadside and shouted, Washoi! as they ran the 500 meter course in five sections. A 23 year old local participating for the first time said while shivering, It was cold though, but it was a good memory. I was able to get rid of my bad luck. End quote. Sorry, I did it. I did it. Japanese original by Seichi Yuasa Morioka Bureau. Thank you, Mr. Seichi Yuasaka,、uh, Yuasa, sorry, from the Morioka Bureau. I'll read that last quote in a normal accent. It was cold, but it was a good memory. I was able to get rid of my bad luck. End quote. I, I, I went for the. The way a lot of people in Japan speak. A lot of people will hear that and they go, What? That's racist. Like,、mm. 
You ever teach at a junior high school in Japan? You're teaching kids how to how to talk like this. And a lot of people in Japan say, that's embarrassing. It's like, well, then stop teaching kids from a very young age to talk like this. That's how they, that's how they teach them. I don't know why. It was cold, but it was a good memory. I was half naked and got rid of my bad luck. All right, there we go. <laughs> That's the weird, weird news. It's oh my, it's OMG WTF. Uh, today we're going to take a look at a few different things uh, for the Japan What podcast. Um, I'd like to begin with some supply chain news. Uh, I call it the supply chain war, and it's pretty obvious that we're in a supply chain war. Um, and a lot of it is the the multipolar society or globe that that is being referred to a lot these days. And one side is the G7 side or the G20, although a lot of countries in the G20 don't really side with the G7 all that much. And then there's the uh, the new the new polar bipolar center of China and Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, BRICS, and all that Brazil. And they're trying to make their own way. And this, has, this also fits into de-dollarization and, and so on. And in my opinion, it really kicked off with the beginning of COVID-19 when Wuhan city in China was shut down. And that's where a, all the world's supply chains went through in one form or another. And ever since then, we've been living with a lot of issues in the G20 supply chains while China is trying to bolster its presence in its own supply chain networks that it is developing under its Belt and Road Initiative or its One Belt, One Road policy. Uh, and let's just take a look at Japan, though. Um, a lot of the G20 or G7 specifically, their vision for the future of supply chains is green. We need green everything. Everything's got to be green. And I, th- I agree to a large extent that if we're going to have these extensive shipping routes worldwide uh, with goods coming in from all over the place, all over the world, and these giant cargo container ships, they, they produce a lot of emissions. And if companies want to say we want to reduce the amount of emissions, then the, the supply chains is a good way to do that. So even though we're in the supply chain war, we're looking at how the G7 kind of establishment are trying to push uh, clean supply chains amid uh, China's uh, rise of its own policies that it's developing. I'm not going to get into it because it's just so much of a um, uh, road to go down that we can't, we can't, we can't do it. So, uh, <coughs> excuse me. This comes to us from the Nikkei Asia, which I don't really like that much, but it says. Japan to spur clean hydrogen production with $20 billion in subsidies. Japan plans to spend 3 trillion yen, $20.3 billion, over the next 15 years to subsidize the production of cleaner hydrogen, aiming to boost cooperation with the private sector to develop a domestic supply chain for the energy source. Hydrogen fuel, which emits only water as a byproduct, is regarded as a next-generation energy source as nations pursue decarbonization. Which nations? The G7, G20. But the cost of hydrogen, covering production through supply, is reportedly 10 times higher than that of natural gas. Tokyo looks to subsidize the cost difference for companies that produce cleaner forms of hydrogen, often categorized as green or blue hydrogen. Oh, this is the advertisement on the Nikkei Asia. G7, aiming to build a new international economic order. 
New World Order. <laughs> they refuse to say New World Order. Most hydrogen currently is produced from natural gas or coal, resulting in carbon dioxide emissions during production. The emi this emissions heavy form is referred to as gray hydrogen. Blue hydrogen involves capturing and storing most of the carbon emissions produced during that process. Green hydrogen produces hydrogen through the electrolysis of water using renewable powers, power sources like solar and wind. Now, do you really think we're going to have enough solar and wind capacity with the technology as it stands today to offset LNG or, or using LNG and coal to make hydrogen and then capturing all the CO2 and storing it in the seabed somewhere? These people are nuts. Japan intends to set three to four kilograms of CO2 emissions during production of one kilogram of hydrogen as the upper limit to be eligible for the subsidy. Anticipated recipients are businesses that produce hydrogen domestically as well as those that import and sell hydrogen from overseas. A bill that includes the establishment of the framework will be submitted during the current regular parliament session, blah, blah, blah. The 3 trillion yen will be financed by Tokyo's Green Transformation, GX, Transition Sovereign Bonds, which will be issued starting in February. Subsidy amounts will be reassured based on the extent of hydrogen adoption. Uh, potential targets include chemical maker uh, Asahi Kase, and Japan plans to increase the, the domestic hydrogen supply by 50% over the current level to 3 million tons in 2030 and to 20 million tons in 2050. And it, I'm not sure what how much tons is required for what or what, but the fact that they're trying to use the green energy bonds because Tokyo is all aboard the green transformation revolution by setting up a, a new bond exchange for people with carbon credits to exchange for this and that and the other thing. And I predict massive fail. So uh, while I applaud the idea of uh, using hydrogen and setting up hydrogen supply chain networks, by doing so with solar panels and wind farms, which require an insane amount of, of, uh, of power to produce, and then you produce the solar and the wind power to then make hydrogen power, it feels like it's um, diluted. Like you have these coal power plants that are making the power, the, the necessary materials for the photovoltaic solar cells and then the massive blades required for the, for the wind turbines. And then you have to offshore it and then connect all of that and deliver all of that and make it and set it up and then hook it up to the grid and all of that. And then what, where's the hydrogen going to go and all it, it sounds ridiculous to be honest. <laughs> $20 billion down the drain. Wow. My God, Japan. Okay. Another one that we're going to look at for today, uh, for the supply chain war. Um, did we set up anything else? Did I play a jingle? Let's just play the supply chain war jingle. This comes to us from Nordot app. I think it's from Kyodo News, uh, more specifically. And this is the, the idea of a U.S. led Indo. Pacific supply chain deal to take effect on February 24th. Um, an agreement signed by the United States and 13 other Indo-Pacific countries aimed at reinforcing their supply chains will enter force into, on February 24th. The U.S.-led Indo-Pacific 
econ- economic framework deal will allow the countries, including Australia, India, Indonesia, Japan, Singapore, and Thailand, not a minor group of people, <clears throat> to work more clearly in dealing with supply chain disruptions, such as the event of a pandemic, too late, by helping each other secure critical industrial uh, items and minerals. The economic initiative, known as the IPEF, was launched by U.S. President Joe Biden in Tokyo in May 2022 to create high-level common standards. Oh, high-level common standards for commercial activities. Again, public-private partnership just means um, government telling your companies what to do or lobbying the government to do what the companies want to do. It's it's not really like... It's money transferring with no real effect. Uh, positive effect. It's always negative effect. Almost always. China is not doing is not part of the framework as it is seen as a tool to reduce reliance on the Asian power for semiconductors, other than and other key materials. Uh, we're not going to read too much more into that. So we have a, a new supply chain. I don't mind actually <clears throat> more and more uh, advanced economies in Asia setting up frameworks for each other. I'm not sure if it needs to be U.S. led though, like uh, Australia, Indonesia, India, Japan, Singapore, and Thailand can all kind of work together without having a U.S. led framework involved. That's what I would kind of prefer would be bilateral or trilateral or multilateral agreements between advanced com- uh, countries to exchange high-level technologies with each other. And then all those countries anyways produce a lot of agriculture and they can they can deal with agricultural economies on that level as well. Or exchanging some agricultural goods for high-level technology if you're Palau or somewhere like that. And so I don't know why it needs to be a U.S.-led thing, especially with the way that the U.S. government is going right now. It's in shambles. It's not effective. And uh, quite frankly, we should be running away from it as fast as possible while still somehow managing to use their dollars until the uh, appropriate escape route uh, opens up and we can uh, ditch it, I guess, because I'm not sure where else it's supposed to go. But that's the supply chain war for today. A couple of um, depopulation ideas for today as well before we move on to Japan Society 5.0. Here we go. This is kind of an interesting article um, from uh, toyokeizai.net. It's a Japanese article, and um, they're they're pretty on board. Actually, I don't I, I I've I read them pretty frequently. Excuse me, always with the assistance of a translator. Um, but they they don't strike me as globalist shills, and they don't strike me as weird right wing think tanks. Just like this, um, if, if you want to know what's going on, you can kind of go there and get a decent understanding uh, without having to parse through uh, an incredible amount of odd bias. That's just my very low-level understanding of Toyokezai.net. I, I quite like them. Demanding freedom of speech, Chinese intellectuals gather in 
Tokyo. Political conflicts within China have begun to involve Japan. Uh, this comes to us from the beginning of the month. Um, and again, it's not a breaking news podcast. It's analyzing trends. We'll just read a couple of paragraphs here. It says, many intellectuals from China are flocking to Japan. This is because speech control is becoming increasingly strict in China. Their attributes are diverse, including journalists, human rights lawyers, documentary film uh, directors, publishers, academics, and artists. It's like our predecessors who absorbed Western thought in Japan at the end of the King Dynasty, Xing Dynasty, returned to Japan and uh, led the Xinhai Revolution in 1911. I'm not sure what the writer's going on with there, but the first example of such an intellectual is historian and economist uh, Qin Hui. I don't know how to say Chinese names. A major figure in the liberal movement, in 2015, he wrote the book Escape from Empire, which examines the reasons why constitutional democracy did not take root in China. Another one is um, Mr. Hatta. Um, Mr. Hatta has been holding a series of lectures titled Globalization in Asia at Universities in Tokyo. And then they say Rebuilding China in Tokyo. Fu Kuo Chang, a writer well-versed in modern history, is also an intellectual who has settled in Japan. His article titled 1911, The Eve of the Fall of the Qing Dynasty, that he published in the Chinese Management News on October 10th of 2011, attracted, atten attracted attention in China. Uh, the opening was thus suggestive. Uh, Tomoko Ako, professor of modern Chinese studies at the University of Tokyo's Graduate School of Arts and Scientists, who's been actively accepting Chinese intellectuals since around 2010, also feels that an increasing number of Chinese intellectuals are moving to Japan. In 2022, Professor Ako will open part of his home in Nakano, Tokyo, um, to accommodate overnight guests, a glass wall made in the image of a front gate of the former Nakano prison where political and ideological prisoners were once held, and a side cave dwelling in China's Shangxi province was also uh, emblematic of this gate, and it's kind of a trademark for the entrance there. Kind of an awkward translation, but it says uh, there's more and more guests from China and Hong Kong, and uh, these are... These aren't like the, the typical sheep in wolf's clothing um, or wolves in sheep's clothing. I'm sorry. Wolves in sheep's clothing coming in as a you know, potential uh, subversive elements. Uh, these are probably people that uh, want to experience a life of books and writing and, and thought and engagement with others. And, um, and they feel the, that Japan is a place to do so. And it really is. I spend a good good amount of my time doing those exact same things, working hard and uh, engaging in a lot of artistic endeavors for a lot of my life in Japan. And you can't expect the whole nation to get on board with what you're doing, but you can expect other people in the community that you develop to get along with what you're doing. But sometimes what happens with these international communities in Japan is that they're easily dispersed because of Everyone's on board because of like a, an artistic goal, but then some sort of political movement happens and it bifurcates the movement or your, your, your supposed movement or people just move on and they get married and have kids and they can no longer like go to poetry readings at midnight in some weird part of Shimokitazawa on a Wednesday. You know, <laughs> those things also affect life as well. So you, you got to get it while you can get it. I just thought those were pretty interesting. Um, now, Another interesting headline, I'm not going to in, read too much into it, but Japan taxi and bus driver's license tests to go multilingual. 
Mm, taxi, I'm okay with because it's one car, but bus drivers, I'm not sure. I it's, it's a bit weird. Now, when we think about a lot about the idea of depopulation in uh, Japan, uh, as well as ethnic migration, a lot of it's coming from these days, especially uh, Vietnamese. And they were brought over en masse in the late 2010s. And then COVID hit. And they kind of got screwed because about 500,000 of them came over when the yen was pretty high and when the economy was doing pretty well at that time. And then COVID hit and everything got shut down. And a lot of them had to resort to crime or they didn't have enough money to pay for things, which resulted in an increase in shoplifting. And I'm not saying that this is like a, a Vietnamese ethnic, um, you know, uh, standard way of doing things. I would never suggest that. I, what I, my sympathies are with them for quite a lot of uh, of these issues, but they they are issues, and I'm not exactly sure what the Abe administration, you know, Shinzo Abe was shot and murdered a few years ago, or was he? Uh, or if you, <laughs> I think he was, was, uh, but unfortunately, so he should not have been murdered as such, uh, dying like a, like a, like a, just in the street, like that's terrible. Um, but he, he was behind a lot of the ideas for opening up Japan to, um, low skill workers to do undergo training in, in Japan and, then they could go back to their home countries and bring some expertise with them. But the world is changing so rapidly. Um, you might even find a lot of the factories in Southeast Asia maybe are better environments to learn about manufacturing than in Japan. If you're doing small-scale manufacturing, Japan is great. Like if you want uh, knives, like chef's knives, or anything that has like a, a, a niche market, a niche market to it, camera lenses like Sigma or Sigma. These things are great places for learning um, technical trades, but unskilled labor in the late 2010s, now four years after COVID and the economy shut down and Japan's economy went down the, down the shitter. I'm not sure how, how these Vietnamese are going to adapt into society very well, especially since they got kind of screwed um, now, there's two aspects to this. There's the idea of the worker, uh, the Vietnamese worker in Japan. And then there's the idea of when the Vietnamese move to Japan and then they also have Vietnamese children. Because of technology now, a lot of people that come to Japan do not need to integrate into wider Japanese um, society at all. Uh, for example, I don't like Japanese TV, and uh, although I will say that a lot of Japanese cinema, like highbrow cinema, can be some of the best in the world, most of the daily consumer culture in Japan is just something I looked at and I immediately said, uh-uh, no thank you. That doesn't mean that I didn't study and I can kind of go about my daily life with restaurants and can I negotiate a contract without a Japanese person? They're probably not, to be honest. But um, that was before the iPhone. And ever since the iPhone and then all this connectivity, if you have a bunch of people living, I used to live with a bunch of gaijins in a gaijin house. And I worked as an English teacher down the street from the gaijin house. And then I went to bars where the Japanese people could speak English. I didn't really feel a need to learn Japanese at all, but at least I was interacting with the wider society. But now 
you come over, you don't make as much money anymore. And then you get cut off from job opportunities because of a stupid so-called pandemic. And you're kind of going, well, screw you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to do what I can do for me because I don't really see the benefit of interacting with the wider population. Then I have my iPhone. I can access all my Vietnamese TV shows here. I have my Vietnamese friends over there and I go to work and I work as a low skilled uh, laborer. I'm not exactly, um, you know, dealing with high level uh, verbal communication strategies. Why would I, what's the reason for me to study? So that's kind of the backdrop to what I'm kind of doing here. And we'll begin with, we'll begin with the, there's the good and the bad, and the, they're both bad and good. From violence to cost, Japanese egg farmer cites problem with foreign trainee program. This comes to us from the Mainichi, Japan's national daily since 1922. In Shinto in Guma Prefecture, uh, quote, are foreign technical intern trainees really cheap labor, end quote. And that would be, the push for Japanese companies to hire these people. They're cheaper, they're subsidized, they're here for a few years, they go home, you give them great skills and you become like this super sensei, look at you, you're amazing. And the Japanese people go, "Mm, yes, I want to make money, but I also want to be super sensei. So, okay. So, are these people cheap? This is what Yoshihiro Iwata wondered, a 36-year-old president of an egg farm in the foothills of Mount Haruna in Shinto, Guma Prefecture. After taking on a 30-year-old or 30 around 30-year-old Vietnamese technical intern who had run out of options during the COVID-19 pandemic, so-called pandemic, Japan's foreign technical intern training program has faced criticism that it serves as a form of quote-unquote slavery and a replacement system system is now under consideration. It's actually since past. When does this come to us from? January 15th, 2024. So it, it could be yesterday, to be honest. Japan's technical foreign intern training program has faced criticism, blah, blah, blah. The, this intern who at the egg farm arrived in Japan in October 2019 to get practical training in form work construction. He had begun working at a construction company in Fukuoka Prefecture, but at the end of the same year, his contract was unilaterally terminated. When it seemed like he would be forcibly sent to Vietnam, a nonprofit organization mm -hmm, uh, that supports foreign trainees stepped in to help. Uh, Iwata's father, impressed after learning that the MPO's activity through the media, offered to assist, and the egg farm accepted this Vietnamese guy who was in his 30s. Although Iwata had taken on a trainee from another country in the past, various issues had made him reluctant about bringing on more. The Vietnamese man had left his wife and children in his home country, and upon investigation, it was revealed that he had incurred a debt of around 1 million yen before coming to Japan. He was granted a residency status, which allowed him to work. After consulting with the supervisory organization, deductions were made for water, electricity, social insurance, etc., to ensure that he had a net income of about 160,000 yen per month, about uh, 1,200 bucks, 1,100 bucks. And he began working at the egg farm in 2020. An empty house near the farm became a makeshift dormitory. Working hours were from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. with no overtime. That doesn't sound like slavery to me, by the way. You get your own place at the back of the farm and what, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. with no overtime so you can do what you want after work? 
Um, however, the other Vietnamese from outside the company began frequenting the house, leading to the trainee's lifestyle going, going slowly off the rails. Eventually, the intern caused an incident. Remember, this is from the Mainichi, Japan. It could be considered conservative, but it's like, this is centrist. Eventually, the intern caused an incident that forced his return to Vietnam. Drunk at a New Year's gathering, he assaulted Iwata's father, inflicting injuries so bad he had to be hospitalized. Reflecting on the situation, Iwata said, quote, Although we knew he had a drinking problem and was prone to coming to work intoxicated, we allowed him to drink, thinking, just for today, we didn't file a complaint, but it was impossible to continue employing him. Perhaps he was at least happy that he managed to repay his debt. Um, and so it kind of goes on and it says like they hired other people. They were also um, problematic. And his final quote is technical intern trainees are by no means cheap labor. So I'm, of course, I'm not saying that if you work with Vietnamese technical trainees that they're going to get drunk and, and try to murder your dad. I'm not saying that, but they tried to do the right thing and they got screwed. And um, that's the bad, right? He's drunk. <laughs> He's bringing over a whole bunch of Vietnamese people because he has a house on the farm. And he has technically quite a bit of free time, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., no overtime, your own work, and you can just booze it up. Now, the other one is an Osaka nursery going extra mile to stop Vietnamese kids from falling behind. Um, again, there's nothing against the Vietnamese on this podcast. Um, I, they're fine. I don't, I don't have any. I've, I've never grown up thinking, oh, those Vietnamese. But, but I have seen a vast amount of Vietnamese uh, workers um, in the convenience stores. They're not good at their jobs. They're supposed to be technical trainees and they come over and it's supposed to be customer service representatives uh, and they don't know how to speak or interact with people except the, each other. They talk to each other all the time and you go in there and they stop talking and they just look at you and then you say, excuse me, and then they don't come over and help you. Yeah, they suck actually in terms of a lot of that. That's my experience. And then I go in later at night and a person from Tajikistan is working there and they're like, yay, where are you from? Oh, how's it going? Oh yeah, you want some of this? Sure, you need a bag, you know? How crazy is that to notice things? A nursery located, this comes to us from the Mainichi. So this is from February 11th, a month later. A nursery located in a part of the western metropolis of Osaka that is known for its diverse ethnic mix offers a window into what Japan could be if it continues to look for overseas solutions to its demographic challenges. In the city of Ikuno Ward, where a fifth of the residents are non-Japanese, around half the preschoolers of, uh, of this uh, preschool place are Vietnamese nationals or have roots in Southeast Asia, in the Southeast Asian country. Most come to Japan with migrant parents who struggle to speak Japanese. Um, if they continue on this way to elementary school, they won't be able to adapt and will drop out of school, uh, said Keiko Tsujimoto, the 72-year-old nursery head. Early uh, Every Monday morning, there's a 30-minute Japanese study period to help these kids out. Uh, but roughly 10% or 10 of them participate and they practice basic things, you know. Um, on one day, the school lunch is pho, a popular Vietnamese noodle dish, 
Um, so the Japanese kids can also experience some, um, you know, shared food experience of the people from different cultures. I'm kind of summarizing here. Um, uh, of the 98 preschoolers at the nursery, nearly half are Vietnamese. This is a different one. Well, there are also Chinese and Korean children. Due to cultural differences and other factors, some of the children still continue to nurse even at age three and older. Because their parents, parents speak to them in their native language, the children's understanding of Japanese tends to be delayed. Um, another particular challenge is faced by five and six-year-olds who are about to enter grade school. Uh, so uh, anyways, a place hired a, a, a person who's fluent in Vietnamese and, and Japanese to help them all out with that. Um, now, it all sounds bad. Like, what are these what are these Vietnamese coming over here and doing and learning no language, but, you know, working and, and, and sending all their kids to Japanese preschools without ever studying or learning the language? And you could say that, um, but one of the workers at the preschool has... Um, a very balanced view about it. And I'll just read it now to, this is the way, this is the reason I'm introducing this article is because I haven't thought about it in this way before. Quote, nowadays, Japanese people's lives would not be possible without foreign workers in agriculture, manufacturing and other industries. She said, that's a very nice way to look at it. Quote, we hope that society will accept them and their children as permanent residents and that the national government and administration will provide support for them. End quote. Now, I don't know if these people will ever integrate I don't know. Like I said, they were brought over in these conditions. They were largely screwed, left here, and people are providing support to them. We'll see how much of, uh, of, of these people will integrate or not integrate. If the Vietnamese adults have a very negative view of Japan and just want to be here for the money, their kids might also grow up with a sense of bitterness. But if the parents are like the society, like the culture, like what it's doing for them, then the, the, the children will grow up knowing that they're kind of foreigners, but then they also might have the, the wherewithal to look at some of the opportunities that could be here for them. Or, you know, if they want to go back or do whatever they want with their lives, they can also do that. So that's kind of today's um, depopulation and, and migration segment. Kind of interesting um, to think about the approaches that are going on. It's like, okay, well, if we can't live without these people, maybe we should support them a little bit. It's a very nice way to think about it. Uh, what should I do for that? I'll put lay this song as an outro. <laughs>
that's a song I uh, recorded and and wrote myself. Just a little minute long instrumental there. Let's take a look at Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through the Internet of Things into new wisdom. Society 5.0, a technology-based, human-centered society. The fourth industrial revolution will raise our standard of living and solve various challenges we face. It will, for example, free us from the stress of driving. All right, that's the government's Japan Society 5.0 uh, promotional video on YouTube introduced around 2016, 2017. At that time, I was working as an AI teacher, essentially, at uh, SoftBank Telecommunications Company at their headquarters there, looking at uh, AI trends and introducing them to their engineers at the time and some of the VPs too. So I have this weird background in AI markets and research. And uh, SoftBank was also maybe going to be involved with some Society 5.0 stuff because it needs the network to deliver all these goods and promises. Um, so since then, I've been maintaining a keen interest in the AI um, markets and, and the AI sphere within Japan and how it connects to Japan. Um, I just say that every week, just like I'm not some... AI guru. I'm not some investor. I'm just somebody who studied it a lot for like every day, 40 hours a week, Monday to Friday for five years. And I still really look at it all the time. And the people that I was um, sharing this information with were uh, telecommunications engineers, AI engineers, scientists, uh, salespeople, all that. And like, depending on the information, I could tell if it was useful or not useful because they were in the field in one way or another, trying to figure ways to integrate this into some sort of sales method, right? So it's markets-based research. Anyways, this comes to us from um, Jesus. Uh, not Jesus. <laughs> Hello, Jesus. AI Jesus. Webtan. Impress.co. Um, I tried Japan's. This is the headline. I tried Japan's first facial recognition vending machine. What is the background behind Dido Drinko's development? Approximately 70 facial recognition vending machines have already been installed in Japan. I didn't know that. As a result of verification, the authentication speed was deliberately slowed down a little, uh, but we asked about the commitment to development. Um, so I'm not really sure what this website is all about, but I've been trying to figure out more about the process or the progress of AI facial recognition in Japan. Um, and I went to some Japanese websites to do so. Japan's first facial recognition vending machine is KaoNet, developed by Daido Drinks. Um, if you register your face photo and credit card information in advance, you can purchase drinks without using your hands through facial recognition payment. This is very popular in China. This is Matthew PMBigelow.com cutting in right now. Go there for all the photos, links, donation ideas, and more. PayPal.me forward slash Japan WUT. And in China, these were rolled out and it was future-proofed, meaning first you would use your facial recognition to pay and then you would use them. But then it was like your social credit score is also now a factor. And then 
<clears throat> how often you're you're using the facial recognition um, machine to buy healthy or unhealthy drinks could also be a future use. So we got to be careful with this technology because it's software based, which means it can be expanded on inside of the hardware that's already there. So it appears and you're like, oh, look at this. It's funky. Takes a picture of my face and gives me a drink. But then three years later, it's like, please, my social credit score is almost up to snuff. I just need a Coca-Cola to get through the day. And the machine is like, no, we are contacting the police. You were illegally trying to use this drinkware. And so it, it goes there very quickly. But I'm not sure if how many other countries are going the Chinese way, to be honest. It's terrifying. Two years have passed since the launch of the technology in April 2021, and the number of installed units in Japan has increased to about 70. There have been cases of its introduction at domestic companies and schools, and the response has been generally positive. I went to, the writer, went to Daido Drinko's Tokyo headquarters and tried out the vending machine uh, to see it did. No need to bring anything. Anything You can receive it within 10 seconds. That's the headline. Uh, and I'll be taking a picture of this from MatthewPMBigelow.com. At Kaone vending machine, a tablet is installed at the right end of the machine at a height of about 150 centimeters. The purchase procedure consists of the following three steps. Press the select button for the product you want to purchase. Take a picture of your face with the tablet. Enter your four-digit passcode. It took less than 10 seconds from pressing the button to, for the drink to receiving it. It seems to be quite fast, especially when switching from capturing a face to entering a passcode. I was able to authenticate even though my face was slightly blurred. After purchasing, a usage notification was sent to my email uh, address and all that. So, <coughs> not exactly the most insane technology now, now but it, it's in Japan and there are 70 of them. Uh, would I use this? Yeah, why not? I would use it uh, if I could, but I'm not keen on using it. But I like having the yes and approach. You can use your money. You can use your face. You can use your uh, commuter card if you have some money. Start on it as well. Let's take a look at the next. Um, this comes to us from Yahoo News, uh, Japan. Uh, the facial recognition AI unlocking system that automates the huge amount of manual work at childcare sites. And when we think about AI, especially with facial recognition cameras or AI cameras, if, if we don't want them installed everywhere, which I don't because it's a panopticon, you have to think about putting a stop to that spread. And putting a stop to that spread means having systems localized. So you might have a gas station, that has its own AI system there. You might have a stadium that has its own AI system there. And you might have a train station that has its own AI system there. Uh, it could be linked up because it's all data being sent through wireless communications, but then you would have to have uh, police step in and analyze the threshold to see if it's worthwhile sharing that data across those platforms. Uh, but if it's just everywhere all the time, it's going to be wrong a lot of the time, and it's going to lead to just everybody wondering if they're being going to like, oh, I, I tripped over a rock and the rock hit a tire on a car. Is that going to call the police on me now because it recognized my face and the car hitting some being hit by a rock and it's a false positive because nobody really cares because that crap happens all the time. Like, the AI systems don't know how to process that information because they're only good at localized applications. Um, stadium, 
stadium applications, gas station, gas station applications, train station, train station applications. The train station applications cannot be copied and pasted into the gas station applications, and the gas station applications cannot be copied and pasted into street surveillance technology either. It's just, it's impossible. It doesn't work. The false positives go through the roof and everybody hates it. So by limiting its use, we therefore stop its use or, or, or curb its use or we know the AI is in our hands because we are putting limits onto its applications. On February 1st, Soko Engineering officially released Misidu, an automated unlocking system for childcare facilities that was jointly developed with FI Create and was previously operated as a beta version. The technology automatically unlocks the gate for parents who have registered their face with Misuru, and it unlocks the gate for parents who have registered their face by linking a padlock with a reader equipped with facial recognition AI system. As an option, it is also possible to use the cloud uh, to link various devices such as authentication cameras, service uh, servers, park office monitors, and handheld smartphones, making it possible to upgrade to a system that can support uh, business from multiple angles. Specifically, by linking with a smartphone, it is possibly to remotely unlock the gate when a visitor arrives and to directly transfer interactions at the counter to a staff member's smartphone. General admission passes are easy to um, forge, so there is a risk of identity theft. But with Misudu, the lock is unlocked by authenticating the face of the registered guardian, so there is no possibility of intrusion by a suspicious person. Um, it could be, though, depending on how what type of facial recognition camera you're using. If you're using a multiple, like an array, like a, a, a camera for your face and your biometrics, a camera for depth, and a camera for heat, like a thermal camera. It, a thermal camera is useful because if you hold up a piece of paper, it's not going to have a heat signature behind it, and it will negate the possibility of an intruder using like a, a picture of somebody to get access into there. And by using depth camera, it, uh, it makes it so that it confirms that the person is in, in a real environment behind them. And then the facial biometrics camera will authenticate your biometric inf information. So you'd be able to go to the um, place where your children is at or your child is at and uh, instead of having to rely on people there to let you in, um, it will let you in based on uh, a pre-decided set of facial recognition cameras and the systems there. Again, I don't mind these systems. I think they're actually pretty good. Um, these systems are also very good for um, places that have a lot of famous people working at them or coming and going from them. If you have uh, people like guarding the entrances and exits or uh, looking at um, parking lots and things like that, if Taylor Swift comes through, you're going to attract like a lot of people. And so the guard man might be like, oh, I'm going to get a picture of Taylor Swift as she's leaving. But if you have AI systems unlocking and locking the doors or raising and lowering the, um, the, the, the guardrail for cars to come and go, through a parking lot security entrance, then you don't have to worry about your security guards um, kind of corrupting the system uh, based on their interest in celebrities. Or also if you have the opportunity for pedophiles to come in in the case of the uh, schools or places where kids are at, the guard, you know, 
sometimes pedophiles would be like, if I'm a guard man there, I can, you know, sneak pictures um, and uh, sell them online. The use introduction of AI cameras, if you gain access to the AI camera, and I guess you could, but it, it reduces the um, the aspect of attracting uh, pedophiles into areas where kids are at. So there's that as well. And I think that's going to be it for today's Japan Society 5.0. I have quite a bit of notes for today. Can't get to it all, though. We're busy, busy people. Um... Yeah, I think that's it. Anything else for today? We, we figured it out. We figured it out. Hold on a second. Society 5.0. We're doing that right now. We did that earlier. Japan supply chain. We don't do nothing for that today. All right. I think it's fine. So we're going to call it a day. Let's get rid of the Japan Society 5.0. The fourth industrial revolution will enable us to create a new society. Artificial intelligence will transform the big data collected through... All right. Remember to go to MatthewPMBigelow.com for photos, links, donation ideas, and more. Get on a new podcast app. That's Podverse or Podcast Guru. Get away from the legacy media apps. They're there to censor and control you. And tell everybody... Until next time, everybody, you found it from the Tomihisa Cho Studios in Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan, the armpit of Asia. It is I, Matthew PMBigelow.com, bidding you a very heartful and warmful Ja Mata Next. <laughs>